This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Today's episode is all about CFO perspectives in the current environment. We're sharing segments of a recent client call that featured Goldman Sachs Chief Financial Officer Stephen Schur, alongside other senior leaders of the firm, who discuss topics that are top of mind for CFOs today, from financing markets and liquidity concerns to earnings guidance and the economic outlook. In addition to Mr. Schur, you'll be hearing from Susie Schur and Dennis Coleman, co-heads of the Global Financing Group, Johnny Fine, head of America's Investment Grade Syndicate, and Jan Hatzius, Goldman Sachs Chief Economist. The conversation was moderated by Matt Gibson and Anthony Gutman, co-heads of Investment Banking Client Coverage. This call was held Tuesday morning, April 28th. Hope you find the call informative. And now over to Matt and Anthony. Good morning, good afternoon, and we're delighted to welcome you to today's call. My name is Anthony Gutman, and alongside Matt Gibson, we run global client coverage for investment banking at Goldman's. We hope that your families and your colleagues, and of course, you are safe and well as we seek to continue to navigate this unprecedented crisis. And the purpose of this call is to provide you with some perspectives as to how we see the current environment, the market dynamics, and hopefully some scenarios from here. In particular, as many of you on this call are CFOs or have responsibility for funding your companies, we want to give you a sense of how we think about liquidity and the different components of the financing markets and how they're operating right now. Now, look, we wouldn't pretend to have all the answers, but at a time when there is clearly huge amounts of information and data flowing, we hope this call can at least help you interpret the data and provide you with a framework for your own planning and decision-making. So with that, let me take you through our speaker lineup for this call. We're going to start with Stephen Scher. Stephen is our CFO, and he runs the firm alongside our CEO, David Solomon, and our president, John Waldron. He's kindly agreed to give some perspectives on how Goldman Sachs is addressing the crisis, how we're thinking about liquidity and funding, both for the firm and our clients, and some longer-term reflections on implications of this crisis. We'll then turn to Susie Scher and Dennis Coleman, who run our financing business in the investment banking division. We've witnessed a very significant pickup in financing activity across investment grade, high yield, and equities in the last few weeks, and they'll explain what they're seeing and what we think that means for corporate. We'll then turn to Johnny Fine, who runs our investment grade business, and he'll touch on the unprecedented levels of investment grade issuance we've witnessed over the last few weeks and what is driving it, as well as how he sees the scenarios playing out from here. Finally, we'll finish with Jan Hatzius, our chief global economist. Jan and his team have been working night and day in the last few weeks to provide revised views on the global economic impact of this crisis. And Jan will talk you through his latest perspectives and then reflect on what clients should be looking for in terms of signs that the economy and the markets are healing. And with that, let me hand over to Matt. Thanks so much, Anthony, for that uh, introduction, and thanks, Stephen, for joining us. I'm going to start uh, really where this crisis started, which is with liquidity. And I think on the minds of this chief financial officers here on the phone is obviously that topic, liquidity, given the events of the past eight weeks and the severity and the speed, really, with which the crisis hit. So maybe just talk for a few minutes about how you think about liquidity in normal times and how that has changed or been magnified during this during this period of stress. Sure, thank you, Matt. Thanks for hosting the call, and I appreciate all of you uh, being on the phone uh, as all of us as CFOs of, of, of companies um, perhaps didn't recognize they were signing up to be CFOs in the midst of a pandemic, but the challenge is in front of us all. Um, you know, in the normal course, Goldman Sachs does its own liquidity planning in the context of um, events and predictable draws on liquidity throughout the year. So there are certain times of the year, there are certain businesses, you know, there are certain actions like rebalancing and, and other activity that go on in the equity or the credit markets that predictably draw liquidity from the firm. And, and we tend to manage our liquidity um, with adequate buffers to meet you know, those excesses as they are, in fact, predictable. And we equally operate with a modeled outflow, meaning we look across various potential draws on liquidity and hold liquidity sufficient to meet those modeled outflows. You know, so those include, for example, in the event that there was excessive draws on 
backup lines, and that's not limited to corporates, but it's equally, you know, around our um, our private wealth management business uh, and the like. And so we maintain an adequate buffer to meet those predicted outflows. And I would say that, like most of you, um, we chart a course over the course of a year where we look at maturing debt and obligations that are there and sort of set sights on what our uh, fundraising would be for the year. What happened here, obviously, in the beginning of March uh, was an extraordinarily sudden and dramatic kind of seizure of the market. And uh, we saw fairly dramatic draws on liquidity. And I would say that wasn't peculiar to Goldman Sachs, but was true of most banks in the financial system. And what brought that about um, was not so much the sudden draw or petition for liquidity by our client set, though that did come, but rather operational challenges in the financial plumbing of the system. So given the seizure of the market, what we saw in the first and second week of March was sort of extraordinarily elevated levels of activity. We saw settlement fails. We saw trading fails. We saw asymmetry of margin call where we found ourselves posting but not getting posted to. And that was an experience being felt by all banks across the system. And so that operational friction drew considerable liquidity out of the system, including from us, only thereafter to be followed by uh, the logical action on the part of CFOs and treasurers like yourselves, uh, some of whom felt it appropriate you know, to draw down on uh, backup liquidity facilities. So together, that created a sudden and fairly significant draw on liquidity. What that meant in terms of our own planning, it was to really take what we were going to do over the course of the year and advance it into the first quarter. And so we did quite a bit of uh, fundraising in the wholesale market. We obviously had the benefit of an acceleration in our new retail deposit platform. And we um, obviously turned to our operational teams to look to tighten down and clear through in a cooperative vein with other banks that which was otherwise causing friction and draining liquidity. And so a combination of operational fixes and fundraising of our own, you know, brought us back to a much more acceptable level of buffer, you know, such that we could carry out business. And obviously the market over time started to experience less of a seized state, you know, that it did in March. But for us, it was, it would, it was a dramatic acceleration of what was otherwise planned over the course of, of the balance of the year. And Stephen, it strikes me as I listen to you talk that all of this was going on while we were ramping up into our Q1 earnings call, which took place two weeks ago. And a lot of the CFOs on the phone either have just had theirs or even many more than that are getting ready to have their earnings calls. So maybe just spend a minute, how did you approach that in terms of preparing for investor questions providing guidance and talking about the future in, in what is, you know, at a minimum, a very uncertain macro outlook. Yeah. So, um, you know, uh, I would say that uh, I tried to prepare for the earnings call um, in as much of a familiar way as I um, typically have. Now, mind you, like many of you, we and our teams are all working from home. And so the task of preparing in kind of the normal course is tested by just that. Um, but I tried to sort of hone to the pattern that we had. Now, unlike many industrial companies, you know, we have never been, you know, one to try to give quarter on quarter guidance. And so, you know, the pivot for us was not as dramatic as it might be for, you know, a number of corporates, corporate CFOs on this call in that we didn't provide guidance in the same way as they do. And therefore the pivot around is not nearly as dramatic. Um, but I think that, you know, while we stayed true to kind of medium and long-term guidance that we had delivered in a January investor day, so think three and five-year forward views about where we were going and what happened over the prior seven weeks doesn't really change, you know, the objective of trying to hit those metrics. You know, I think that it, it becomes a bit of folly to try to stick to near-term guidance, especially at a moment when, you know, your financial forecasting ability is very limited. And I think it's seen that way 
you know, by most of your shareholders and those that will be on the phone. I will say that in, in the course of the Q&A on our earnings call, I suspect it'll happen for most everybody on this call. And in my discussion with investors after, more people are looking uh, for all of us um, as an indicator of forward guidance on the economy than maybe even more that we are providers of forward guidance on our company. And there are many more voyeurs who are out there who are you know, not necessarily interested in what your company is guiding to in so much as what you are guiding to as an indication of the broader market. And obviously, you're going to hear from Jan Hatzius, our chief economist on this phone call, who will give you his view on the forward. But I think you know, it's against that backdrop that people look to us as chief financial officers as taking that economic backdrop and trying to translate it into, you know, actionable investment ideas, if you will, in terms of where companies are going and what the market is expressing. And I think that's an almost impossible task in the context of where they are. So for some of you, they'll ask, you know, what's your, what's your um, backlog look like? What, are your, what, what is your expectation of product and demand development look like over the next quarter? You know, for us, it, it is a view as what's going to play out in terms of your credit exposure and where, you, where, where will your reserves be and the like. And all of those are questions that are pointed at trying at, at an investor or a questioner trying to assemble a kind of broad view. And best I could, I would resist it. I don't think that now's the time for any of us to sort of play the blind hero and run down kind of that dark tunnel when your ability to forecast, and many of you have formally withdrawn your forward forecasts, you know, are, are in a position to do it. And instead, you know, I would just speak to what you see at the moment and perhaps talk to, as we did, you know, what, what elements would you need to see in the market for a scenario A or a scenario B to play out? But I wouldn't sort of get trapped necessarily into, you know, forecasting where, you know, you just simply cannot. Yeah. That's good advice, and and you mentioned you mentioned the word forecasting, Stephen. And I know I know within Goldman and all of our clients, we maintain a, a financial forecast, and there's probably more scenario plans being run now than there typically is. But how do you think about that going forward as you think about managing the firm's finances, downside cases, you know, and things like that? How do you um, you know, how do you how do you direct your team to show you information that, that, that allows you to form these judgments? Well, I think the first the first distinction I would make is that we all have our internal plans and then there is an external plan. Now, the latter is keyed off of a judgment at the right time. And this may not be the one where you develop an internal plan with a level of confidence that you're prepared to go out and talk about publicly. You never stop. We never stop developing internal scenarios, they just multiply. And, you know, they are attached to a variety of different variables, you know, around which, you know, you play out. At the end of the day, all of us are risk managers in one form or another, and we're meant to manage, you know, the liquidity risk, in some cases, the credit risk, um, and the forecasting risk that's embedded in our business. And each of us carries a range of risks that are different one to the next. You know, what's the risk of your supply chain? you know, getting, getting stopped or slowed? Um, what's the risk that the demand side doesn't develop for a particular product or service? And I think on our case, you know, we, we're dealing with, you know, what is our credit exposure to a variety of different, um, uh, to a variety of different asset classes? You know, what happens if the market moves up or down in, in, in elements of, of, of 10 or 20 or 50%? Um, how do we manage liquidity risk? And by the way, it would, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention, you know, the inherent risk of our people and how many can you have in the office or not? How many can you have on your factory floor or not? So in the development of our own internal modeling, which guides the level of liquidity buffer or the level of capital that I hold the bank to, you know, all of that is premised on a, a series of risk variables and you try to assemble, um, you know, those that, kind of honed to sort of the logical conclusion. I would also say that I, I try to resist, you know, in a population of 40,000, 40,000 experts who have a view about what our risk parameters ought to be. Um, at the end of the day, my team and I need to manage to 
kind of the reasonable outer bounds, not the unreasonable, but the reasonable, and hold liquidity and hold capital such that the organization can remain safe in in what is a fat tail, you know, in um, in a series of scenarios right now. And and we talked about the difficulty of prognosticating, but I'm going to ask you to prognosticate just for one second. Do you, in terms of the way investors value companies, and you think back over the last 10 years and summer earnings and summer cash flow and summer other multiples, do you have any sense at all as to whether this crisis will change how investors value certain types of companies? For example, will more, will more emphasis be put on earnings versus cash flow or vice versa? More emphasis on business fundamentals versus short-term metrics? You know, more, more obviously emphasis on liquidity than, than it was before. Yeah. I think about that. You know what? Um, I think that in my own experience, and I know many of the CFOs on this call and, and, and have worked with them over the years when I was in investment banking, you know, the market tends to have, just in my experience, a shorter memory, you know, than not. And so I think that in the near term, there will be a changing disposition among investors where, you know, they will be quicker to reward stronger balance sheet. Um, they will reward companies that in the near term will have dominance in a given sort of market segment by virtue of the pandemic. Um, but I think over the longer term, kind of fundamentals around how people value companies will hone more to the norm than not. And so I, I'm just drawing the distinction between the near term and the long term. In the near term, I think <laughs> liquidity position, balance sheet strength, more immediate market position in a set of variables that express themselves amidst the pandemic, you know, will be the winning ticket, if you will, in the context of it. Uh, but I think over the longer term, the market will tend to hone back to kind of fundamentals. You know, in, in a conversation I had with one of our uh, traders in fixed income, he made a comment to me, which has stuck with me, which is that um, at the moment, the market is rather bullish on technicals in the market and rather bearish on fundamentals, meaning, you know, the Fed and, and the Fed has taken actions, as have other central banks, to sort of underwrite to technical variables in the market that were very uncertain and anxiety provoking, provoking particularly in the month of March. And so people have grown bullish around the technicals in the market. But I think as we move from March and April and into May, and further into June and deeper into the second quarter, you know, I think people will rightfully start to question, you know, fundamentals, that is credit fundamentals among companies. And that's where I think, you know, in the near term, people will focus on balance sheet and liquidity and sanctity of dividend and so forth, you know, but ultimately over the longer term, you know, we'll revert back to sort of a more conventional set of metrics. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, I think one more from me and then I'll hand it over to Anthony. Um, to ask a couple of questions, but just circling back, Stephen, to those initial couple of weeks, I mean, I think we can agree the monetary and the fiscal policy response has been kind of historic slash unprecedented. And now we're going into obviously second and third waves of, of funding to help you know people manage this crisis. How helpful was that first government injection? What did it do? And, and what are you seeing the current stimulus and facilities that have been put in place do to impact the markets? Well, I, would, I mean, this runs a little bit to, you know, the comment I made as to, as to distinguish between technicals in the market and fundamentals. I think that, and Jan can speak to this um, when you turn to him later on in this call, but as a question of, you know, uh, policy, I think the Fed, along with the ECB and the Bank of England, um, did a, an extraordinary job at reacting quickly to sort of pull seizure away from the marketplace. And I think they did it in kind of an interesting progression. You know, they first began to ensure that banks could serve, you know, as, as the vessel, if you will, or as a partner with central banks in delivering liquidity and credit into the market. And so in establishing term financing through the window, the Fed window, or establishing a similar facility for primary dealers and then moving away from the entities and starting to move to sort of asset classes. And so I think they first looked at commercial paper as kind of a beachhead to the balance of the system. That is, if they pulled some of the tension away from commercial paper, 
they would relax some of the eventual progression into, you know, backup facilities and more formidable, you know, financing and term financing. And so they addressed commercial paper and then started to address, you know, the investment grade market and then to some extent the high the high yield market. And, and in each of those, I think, you know, they they're they're the mere announcement of certain of those programs, never mind their execution, was in certain circumstances enough to sort of calm the market down such that companies like those that are represented on this phone call, you know, were in a position to get back into the market. And that's why we saw, you know, the the just the sheer volume of investment grade and even below investment grade um, funding that went on over the course of the month of April. And it, it is, in my view, only by virtue of, you know, the Fed stepping in to sort of calm those markets and give rise and give way for that to happen. Now, on the fiscal side, you know, I think we have the, you know, we have the PPP and various other programs that are in place that are meant to, in effect, bridge certainly the U.S. economy, if not global economies, you know, and, and avoid kind of calamitous unemployment and so forth. I think there we'll, we are seeing and will continue to see some noise. You know, moving from policy to implementation is a hard pivot. And policy may have been enough, that is the announcement of programs by the Fed, notwithstanding the depth of implementation, policy may have been enough. But I think when you turn to the fiscal, it's more than policy, it is implementation. And I think, you know, that's a risk that the market is wrestling with at the moment not just as to the efficacy of those programs, but their ability to be implemented, you know, in a way that solves what the objective is. And, and so I, you know, to answer your question, you know, just succinctly, I think central banks and governments have done quite a bit. I think the central bank exercise, you know, was successful at calming the markets. I think the jury's out a bit, you know, though I would be more positively inclined than not in terms of implementation of fiscal policy. Great, Stephen. Got it. Thanks very much. Let me just uh, we'll just do two more questions before we hand over to Susie and Dennis. One of them is, look, while we're still obviously in the middle of this crisis, um, it's clear that over the last few weeks, people have started to pivot towards what life may feel like and look like on the other side of this. Have you given some thought to once we get into a, if you like, a more normalized period, whatever that may look like, what longer term optimization of balance sheet strategy is, you know, what is the right liquidity ratio, what is the right capital ratio, and without being unduly prescriptive, but just interested how you're thinking about that in a new world order. Well, I mean, you know, um, it's an interesting question. I mean, you know, as you can tell in the way I, I responded to the prior question, uh, I'm less in the camp that we will experience, you know, seismic shifts either in the way people value or look at companies over the long term, or frankly speaking, the way in which we will all comport ourselves from a balance sheet point of view, or even for that matter, you know, fundamental shift in, you know, the way in which we work. Now, that's not to suggest that I don't think change will come. It certainly will. But I think, you know, in terms of, in terms of the manner and form with which we work, you know, this firm is running exceptionally well with 98% of our people working at home. You know, I don't think that's either, you know, long-term sustainable or frankly desirable in that I think social engagement and interaction is, is, is a key element here. But I do think it sheds some light on, you know, geography and real estate and where we need to be and perhaps all don't need to be, you know, collected in, you know, locations like London or New York and can be more spread out. But, you know, truthfully, this firm was going in that direction before. I think from a balance sheet and liquidity point of view, I think, we, you know, this, this, this has opened our eyes to, you know, at least from, from a financial services perspective, to, you know, risk of operational challenge and what that means in terms of liquidity and perhaps sets us up for more elevated buffers as you know, the longer you move away from crisis, you know, the less you feel compelled to maintain, you know, elevated levels of liquidity. And this may be, you know, a way of correcting this back to ensure that it's prudent insurance to carry the cost of excess liquidity that's there. I think the balance sheets of, of firms, you know, will remain, 
you know, in a way that, you know, from a bank point of view, they have all been elevated, certainly relative to where we were a decade ago. And I think they're healthy and, you know, they have provided sufficient buffer for banks to comport themselves the way they have. I think that um, as for corporates, you know, non-financial institutions, you know, I would say that, you know, the pivot will be an interesting one in terms of what sort of debt stock you should hold and the like, because, you know, we have been in a very benign interest rate environment and the cost of carrying, you know, elevated leverage was less. And so as a consequence, you're in a position to carry that, you know, depending on the long term and where rates go and, and the like, I think that could change, you know, the burden of debt and the, 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 the leverage that's set on balance sheet in a, in a, in an, in an interest rate environment other than the one we've been in could prove different. Now, I'm not suggesting for a moment that, that we're in for higher interest rates very quickly, but I think, you know, that will change more. That will alter kind of the balance sheet profile of many companies more than I think the pandemic itself. And I think, you know, to the extent that, again, in the near term, perhaps more than the long term, balance sheet strength, liquidity, um, market share and the like, will be near-term drivers, and that may lead, um, you know, people to sort of run with a more conservative bias, you know, to balance sheet than not. Great. One, one final question. Um, one thing we we touched on a bit, even as we're going through this, but I haven't got into in detail, is, is cost base. It's mm-hmm. been interesting, as all of us have observed in, in the last few weeks, that people are thinking about their cost base in a different way. They're thinking about what levers are appropriate to pull in this type of a crisis, you know, obviously the societal elements of ESG are coming to the fore. How are you thinking about managing, you know, the cost base? How do you think CFOs should be thinking about managing cost base against the backdrop of both the financial dynamics of this market, but also these broader themes? Well, I think the last several years and kind of, you know, the a, a, a benign, you know, economy, you know, and, and you know, has led us all to get, you know, potentially distracted from focusing on, you know, certain cost elements in all of our businesses. You know, you, you're not pressed to look at it until you're pressed to look at it. And I think that, you know, it's moments like these that you start to look hard at your cost base and, you know, you equally at least ask yourself the question, if not you're asked by others, why didn't you look at this or that before? And, and so, there's a there's a natural you know pivot to focus on that which you otherwise ignored and i think you know just speaking for our own organization you know we look at you know the extent to which we carry variable costs we look at certain fixed costs we look at our real estate footprint apropos of the prior question and kind of ask ourselves you know are we running with and does this cause us to reassess you know our overall footprint the size of our employee base, um, you know, have we really pressure tested, you know, exchange fees and processing costs? And have we really run to sort of higher levels of tolerance, you know, the way in which our operations group processes trades and the like? And so I think events like the one we're living through, you know, cause us to put a keener focus on that, which we otherwise, and in a sort of human nature, ignore right over the over the recent past and this causes us to turn to it and i think every cfo on this call would have a list of things that you know they knew they could or should have been looking at myself included and now we you know we're compelled to take a look at them and i think in some respects that's a healthy exercise to go through Stephen, that's great and um, a big thank you for taking the time given how busy you are at this period of time i think we'll leave it at that um, we've had plenty of questions, and so we may um, we may circle up with you after the school to try and follow up on a few. But thanks for joining us. No, it's my pleasure, and but I now, hope you all stay well. Thank you. Thanks, Stephen. We're going to now, um, as we mentioned at the outset, we're going to now turn to uh, Susie and Dennis, who jointly run our financing group business within the investment bank. So over to you guys. Thanks, Anthony. And Matt, um, thanks for having us today on the call. I, I thought I'd start by trying to give you all a sense of what's transpired over the last six weeks in the financing market, as we've seen quite an incredible transformation. And one thing that you should take away from our discussion is how interconnected all of the markets are. 
normally when companies are looking to raise equity or debt, be it investment grade or high yield, they're thinking with sort of a single product focus, how am I going to raise this capital I need? And I don't think there's ever been a time where markets were more uh, interconnected and intertwined. Um, I'll fast forward through the beginning, but I think it's important to remember that the first couple of weeks of this crisis were characterized by incredible volatility and the speed of which that volatility appeared in the market was like nothing we'd ever seen. It was sort of a car crash experience. We couldn't stop watching our screens, the TV. At the same time, we were worrying about our families. We were running a business continuity playbook like none of us had ever uh, seen before. And we were facing the darkest days since the global financial crisis. And as Stephen talked, you know, uh, companies that were immediately impacted by shelter in place and saw their businesses grind to a halt tried to get their arms around liquidity quickly. And both issuers and investors turned quite dis- defensive. We started to see unprecedented revolver draws across investment graded high yield. The sea markets ground to a halt. And companies and impactor sectors, the airlines, the cruise lines, lodging, retail, put into place incremental liquidity facilities above and beyond those revolvers. And all the banks stepped up. And I won't go down the rabbit hole of how healthy the banks are um, this time around versus the global financial crisis. But it is a really important point because I think it contributed to what happened next in terms of the um, functioning of all markets. At first, we began to scenario plan for our companies to access markets um, that were shut and to access private markets. And so we were having unprecedented discussions for example, with alternative asset managers who were eager to step in uh, via private placement transactions like pipes. Um, and then um, suddenly the market started to open. I'm going to fast forward through what happened next because I don't want to steal my partner, Johnny Fine Thunder. He's going to talk to you about that flood of liquidity that reopened investment grade and, and, and uh, caused the CP market to start functioning. And I'm going to jump to the second order thing which is the opening of the high yield market. The big difference between this and the global financial crisis is that the market stayed closed for much longer. And um, the high yield market was sort of the heart of the crisis. There were lots of LBOs on bank balance sheets. Those were being de-risked. Three weeks into this, for me, I think of it as a six-week crisis because I think of it, you know, when did I go to work from home six weeks ago last Friday? We did our first high yield bond deal for Yum Brands. It was a $600 million transaction. And we were so excited that the high yield market had opened that we posted all the way up to, to Stephen uh, and John Waldron and, and David Solomon. There was actually a, a high five email when we led uh, Yum Brands um, deal. Since then, we've seen $105 billion of high yield bond issuance. That's up 53% yield to year to date. Last week, we saw Ford recently downgraded to double B, actually pre-COVID, take $8 billion out of the market in a single day. And while markets, uh, while coupons remain elevated, we've seen some double B companies uh, raise money at sub 5% coupons. And last week, we saw double B Cedar Fair. We saw Gap, Netflix, MGM. We even did a successful deal for B minus C World Park. And this incredible function in the market should tell you something. Uh, and, and that something is that, and Dennis is going to talk a little bit more about the investor side and um, how, um, and, and how um, all, all securities are performing on the back of these transactions. But what it means is people think and hope that we will come out of this um, at some time, maybe not soon, but in time to recover. The other market we should talk about um, that that has been a bright spot in also providing defensive liquidity for a range of issuers is the convert market. Since that market reopened in April, we've seen about 10 billion of issuance across 17 deals. Now, I know that sounds small relative to $105 billion high yield issuance, but a normal April for converts is about 2 billion. And while that market um, has seen a lot of issuance by technology and healthcare companies, which tend to be the most active, We've also uh, funded for uh, uh, companies in the travel industry, in the retail industry. Um, the important transaction in the market um, that I'd, I'd focus on was a, a $2 billion convert for Carnival, that cruise lines, which came side by side 
with an with a uh, common equity deal and four billion of secured bonds. And so that's what I'm talking about: this integrated in the market, the integration of the markets, providing either rescue capital or defensive capital side by side. For all of you who have to raise money in any market, the most important takeaway. Um, Number one, it's just that markets are open. All markets are open and that you can have confidence that on most days, even as we see volatility on the screens, we see um, even negative news about the virus, um, you can have confidence that you can access the liquidity you need um, to sort of defend your balance sheet. The second point is that these deals are performing very, very well in the secondary market. So while they come at somewhat elevated concessions to either equity or debt, um, they they perform after the fact. And that allows the next next issuer to come to market with confidence. Um, I'd close and hand it over to Dennis by saying, as we all find room to exhale and hopefully move out of this um, sort of chaos phase into the defensive phase, we hope some of you will turn to offense as you resume thinking about strategic opportunities in your sector, and markets should be open and receptive to finance those opportunities across all products. I'll turn it over to Dennis to talk in some more detail about the performance of our most interesting transactions and also focus um, on Europe, which is where uh, where his home base is in London. Thanks, Susie. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. Um, I'll try to add just a little bit of perspective, perhaps from the other side of the equation, the investor side. It's it's obvious that investors at the eye of the storm are looking to shore up balance sheets and raise liquidity. Um, but in order to do so, to extend that uh, access to capital beyond the commercial banking system globally, um, access to the broader capital markets has has happened um, with vigor. Um, and, and the reality is that investors are rewarding issuers that have fully financed business plans. And while there is Uh, a whole heap of uncertainty out there. Um, There are investors, uh, many of the active public and private investors in the world that are willing to take a view uh, with some cushion. And so there are uh, examples uh, that exist across equity and debt markets, which include companies absolutely severely impacted by COVID who are successfully raising capital by being proactive and going to debt and equity investors. I'll take the example of Informa, which is an events operator, um, which raised a billion pounds of common equity alongside loans, demonstrating it had access to capital and liquidity. Investors were uh, embraced the offering. They supported a substantial upsize of the total transaction size because they could see that it provided that much more cushion and runway for the company, a company that was a fundamentally good, solid company, an investable company with a good, solid track record, just um, uh, you know, very much impacted by the events. That transaction uh, successfully priced and has traded up you know, more than 13.5% in the aftermarket, uh, where investors are very, very pleased with how that worked. In a similar way, a company called DoFree, which is an operator of duty-free retail in airports, among other locations, another highly impacted business, was able to raise 160 million Swiss francs of common equity, 450 million of a convert, as well as term loans for the same purpose, shore up liquidity, extend duration for its business plan. And then ultimately that common equity is traded up you know, about 7% after the fact. Again, investors uh, celebrating and, and respecting the decision to proactively um, sort of liquefy the balance sheet by time to execute on the business plan. And the last example occurs in the world of high yield. So this isn't just about uh, accessing equity markets to de-risk your capital structure. Um, there's a, a Blackstone-owned portfolio company in single B space by the name of Merlin. It's an operator of theme parks um, where only nine of their 130 uh, locations are actually open. So very, very difficult circumstances. Yet they were able to go to the market, raise over a half a billion euros of of high yield debt at seven percent, um, and basically extend out the duration so they could return to to operations. And investors basically saw it as an opportunity to come and put money to work for a substantially good company, um, which was you know befallen difficult times, but generate a premium yield um, uh, for extending credit at this sort of time of uncertainty. And and our dialogue is just replete with investors around the world, cross asset classes, debt equity, and more structured transactions where they're willing to step in and support you know, really solid companies, take a view on uh, liquidity and capital 
uh, to let these businesses function. So those are just a few examples. Um, uh, and to the extent uh, any of you are in those, having those types of discussions, you know, be more than happy to uh, help you understand what, what options might be available to you. Um, but with that, I'll maybe turn it uh, back over to Susie quickly and then on to Johnny. Thanks, everyone. I think we're ready for Johnny. Good. Good. And so, guys, as I as we transition to Johnny, uh, for the clients on the phone, hopefully it's clear what we've seen is just a a massive recovery, really, in in the financing markets, uh, starting in investment grade, moving to high yield. You've heard the numbers, then transitioning to convertibles, and now uh, into common. Although we've seen less common uh, than we have in the other markets. And so, what we want to do now with Johnny Fine is put a spotlight for you on what has been the biggest market which has been investment grade, uh, and Johnny runs our investment grade uh, syndicate business for us and speaks to clients all day and helps us lead those transactions. And so for those of you who are wondering where that market is headed, Johnny's going to spend about five minutes talking about that. Great. Thanks, Matt. Um, so for context, I thought I would start by sharing some of the statistics that speak to the unprecedented volume that we've been seeing. So year-to-date volumes currently sit at $759 billion. That's up almost 75% versus this time a year ago. The key drivers of this volume growth have come from the non-financial corporate sector, especially within the U.S. Corporate issuance overall currently is up 86%, while U.S. corporate issuance is up 127% year-over-year at $410 billion. And for context, in 2019, it took us until just after Labor Day to reach $410 billion of U.S. corporate issuance. The vast majority of all of this issuance has taken place in the last seven weeks, by far the busiest stretch in our market's history, along the way setting monthly volume records for March. That record is now within touching distance for April and will very likely be beaten again in May. And what started as simply an exercise for corporates to layer in excess liquidity for a meaningfully uncertain period has morphed into financing additional uses of proceeds, which I'll touch upon shortly. So where we sit today, notwithstanding us being in the midst of a global economic recession, the likes of which we have never seen before, is that in many cases, the market is offering up the most attractive financing environment we have seen in a decade. We have clearly seen a sharp, V-shaped recovery in credit spreads, while open-ended and unlimited purchases of U.S. Treasuries have created very attractive benchmarks to price versus. As a result of this, average single-A and double-A financing yields today sit at their best decile of the last 10 years, while triple-B yields are in their second best decile. We're also seeing records broken from a financing cost perspective. Eli Lilly last week raised 30-year money at 2.25%, the lowest ever for a 30-year financing in our market. And importantly, the various Fed facilities that have been announced since March 23rd, many of which remain not yet in operation, have enabled the following key steps of market reparation. Number one, the continued broadening out of market access so that the full range of IG credits across industries have access to institutional debt capital. This has created the widest dispersion I have ever seen in our market, Yesterday, for example, we priced five-year investment-grade financings across a variety of credits, one that yielded 1.75% and another at 9.5%. However, what is critical here is that companies, even in those industries that are materially impacted by the economic shutdown or indeed the collapse in energy prices, have access to significant liquidity in the debt capital markets. Number two, the evening out of access across the yield curve, including shorter-dated tenors. Back in late March, only long-duration tenors were accessible, with front-end markets challenged by material selling pressure, resulting in sharply inverted credit curves. That is now reversed, and as such, companies are able to raise bridge liquidity in the debt capital markets very efficiently across two-, three-, and five-year tenors. And number three, we're seeing progressively more offensive use of proceeds debt raises. Particularly, we are seeing companies taking the very attractively priced opportunity to fortify their balance sheets for the months and years to come, while making strategic changes to the liquidity profile of their balance sheets. And this last point will be the key driver of volumes in the coming weeks, and that will include refinancing long-term debt coming due in the next 12 to 36 months, reducing commercial paper balances, likely permanently, especially for A2P2 rated borrowers, 
and returning drawn revolvers back to their natural contingent liquidity state, resetting bank market capacity for future emergency needs. And on the demand side, it's clear that IG is currently viewed extremely favorably on a risk-adjusted basis versus other fixed-income asset classes, especially post the various Fed intervention announcements. And again, even though the corporate credit facilities are not yet operable, the effective backstop in place has driven and will continue to drive substantial amounts of long-term capital to form on the buy side, both domestically and abroad, ready to be deployed into the large issuance calendar that will characterize the next several weeks. And of course, the outlook does remain uncertain, and market indicators clearly show this. The VIX currently sits in the 30s while starting the year in the low teens. It's unclear how economic activity will rebound as the economies reopen, and of course, it is unclear how infection rates may change as people physically go back to work. And it's further unclear as to how these Fed corporate credit facilities will be implemented, the subject of intense speculation within the broad credit ecosystem. And so as such... I do expect a significant number of our corporate clients to take the opportunity to take advantage of these extraordinary financing conditions that coexist with these unprecedented health, economic, and business challenges. Matt and Anthony, back over to you. Great, Johnny, thank you for that. Um, We're gonna finish off now for the last 10 minutes with an update from Jan Hatzius. Um, As we said at the outset of this call, Jan runs our economics department um, across the globe for the firm and has been furiously publishing notes over the last few weeks. And so we thought it would be a good way to conclude this call to give you a a temperature check on where we are right now and some perspectives on what the future may hold. So, Jan, over to you. Okay, uh, great. Thanks, Anthony. Um, So from an economic perspective, we only have partial information still on just how big a hit the economy has taken, uh, basically because the official GDP numbers are pretty lagging and subject to a revision. But our best guess at the moment is that the level of GDP both in the U.S. and on average globally is down something like 15% from where it was at the start of the year because of the virus and the policy responses and the social distancing. And that's based on a couple different methods. The the first one is a bottom-up look at the different components of GDP and basically a mark-to-market on how much each of these components is likely to be down. That's based on industry reports and more anecdotal information. That gives us a hit of something like 10 to 15% in the U.S., and maybe 15 to 20% in Europe. The second approach is a bit more top-down, where we look at countries that have already seen big hits from the virus, such as China, for example, and that already have official GDP estimates for that period. And then we basically extrapolate those estimates based on what we see in the relative intensity of lockdowns and social distancing. So, for example, our estimate is Chinese GDP in February was down something like 25%. And our estimate is that China in February had somewhat more lockdowns and social distancing and somewhat more rigid regime than what we have in the U.S. at the moment, Um, you know, maybe uh, 50% more or U.S. is about, you know, maybe two-thirds of what China had. And so we can extrapolate from that an estimate for the U.S. and other economies where we have some estimates of social distancing and lockdowns. And that gives us, for the U.S., about 17, 17% GDP hit at the moment. And that's also the average for the world at this point. Some, uh, some parts of the world have, have bigger numbers. This sort of method would give you more than 20% in Europe, and uh, we would get smaller numbers in Asia, where countries have already either moved past the worst lockdowns, China being the best example, or didn't move to as rigid a regime as you can see, for example, in places like Taiwan or Korea. Uh, So that's where we are at the moment. Now, where are we going? Our best guess is that we're going to see a gradual recovery in output as we go into May and June for a few reasons. One, the virus news at the margin has turned 
less negative. The, what we focus on in particular is the growth of active cases. So uh, the uh, you know current the the current number of people that are that are ill, and that the growth there has clearly fallen. That was already true in Asia. Uh, we saw sharp declines already a couple of months ago. We're clearly seeing it in Europe, uh, where in fact, over the past seven days, active cases have been about flat, so no growth. The U.S. is somewhat behind in this, but at the margin, uh, growth in active cases is coming down in the U.S. as well, and we think that's probably going to be more visible as we go forward. So as the uh, growth of the virus slows, we are likely to see some gradual reopening, and uh, clearly we're seeing that in uh, in Europe, and we're starting to see it in some places in the in the U.S. Of course, there are risks associated with that, but the trend uh, we think is towards cautious reopening, and that's uh, going to bring back some economic activity. Uh, second point is that even if you reopen only gradually. I think you're likely to see some adaptation and better hygiene protocols, and that should boost some sectors of the economy, potentially quite meaningfully, uh, especially in, in areas where hygiene protocols can really make a significant difference. And I'm thinking specifically not so much of things like restaurants and consumer-facing uh, or face consumer activities that require high face-to-face -face interaction, but really more the industrial sector and the construction sector. And I think what we've seen in China somewhat shows the way on this, because China really did manage to bring back industrial activity uh, relatively quickly, even during the period when they still had very significant lockdowns. So for example, Chinese industrial production in March is by our estimates up 30 to 40 percent from February in seasonally adjusted terms, uh, not annualized. So we're not yet back to the pre-crisis level, but we've brought back uh, a very significant proportion, more than two-thirds of the previous decline by our estimates. Now, in the West, I don't expect that rapid a, a rebound, but I do think that if we look at plans of manufacturers in the U.S. or in Europe that we will see sequential growth in May and, uh, and June. And then, and then the third reason to expect some recovery is that the aggressive monetary and fiscal easing by the Fed, other central banks, uh, legislatures uh, around the world, that, that really has supported financial conditions. And if you look at our financial conditions index, which is a weighted average of rates, credit, equities, and currencies with weights that, that are based on the impact of shocks to each of these variables on growth over the next year, we've seen a tightening clearly on net since the, the start of the crisis. But the tightening, even at the peak, was significantly less than what you had in 2008, and now has uh, moderated very significantly. So the, the fact that financial conditions uh, did not suffer the, the same kind of disruption is, I think, an important reason to expect some economic recovery as well. And, and uh, policy clearly had a lot to do with that. Um, policymakers were much more aggressive at a much earlier stage. And I think we're going to see some benefit from that. So what does all this mean for our growth forecasts? Our, our expectation, if you look at it in year-on-year -year terms, if I just take the U.S. as an example, is that the second quarter is going to be down about 11% from a year earlier. That's the second quarter as a whole. So it's a little bit less than the, than the peak hit, but down about 11% from a year earlier. And then we're expecting about minus 7% in the third quarter and minus 5% in the fourth quarter. So I would call that a pretty U-shaped pattern where you get back just over half of the hit that we see in the first half of the year by the end of the year. And I'd also note that even a 5% year-over-year decline in the fourth quarter 
would still be the weakest number ever recorded, at least in post-war history, if it wasn't for the second and third quarter. So it's, um, it's a relatively gradual recovery. And uh, that's the example of the U.S., but other advanced countries are likely to be fairly similar, somewhat worse in Europe and uh, somewhat less bad in places like Japan or Korea. But even though it's a relatively gradual recovery, if you look at it in year-on-year -year terms, that nevertheless gives you some very strong growth rates in the second half of the year if you focus on sequential numbers, quarter-on-quarter, quarter-on-quarter annualized numbers. So, for example, in the U.S., same numbers that I just mentioned would give you uh, minus 34% in the second quarter, quarter-on-quarter quarter annualized, but then third quarter and fourth quarter in our forecast are up by 19% and 12% respectively on a quarter-on-quarter quarter annualized basis. So even though it's really a pretty U-shaped recovery, I think uh, it could look uh, quite V-shaped, and sometimes these forecasts look quite V-shaped to a lot of people, so a lot of this is a matter of perspective. Um, just before I close, just want to address one quick question that I'm getting a lot now, which is whether the price for the enormous amount of government stimulus from monetary and fiscal policy, whether that's going to be a significant amount of inflation at some point down the road. I mean, are we running a risk that a 20% of GDP federal deficit and many trillions of asset purchases will ultimately debase the currency in the U.S. or elsewhere. Um, our answer is that we're not that worried about that. Our answer is no. And that's really uh, the same answer that we uh, would have given and gave pe to people who were worried about very similar things in the aftermath of the 2008 crisis. There are lots of differences between this crisis and the 2008 crisis, but I think the idea that ultimately fears of currency debasement are going to turn out to be uh, overblown, I think that's going to be one of the similarities. Uh, because basically, I think the government is effectively filling a hole that has been torn by private sector retrenchment, and that's not an inflationary development. And I think uh, one way to see how big that hole is, is by looking just at the U.S. labor market. Our expectation for the headline unemployment rate by the middle of the year is 15%. And even that, if you just take the headline number, would be by far the highest level of the post-war period. But that really understates the, the labor market hit, because in order to be counted as unemployed, you have to be actively looking for work. If you look at a broader measure of labor underutilization, I think uh, that would be more, uh, more, more um, uh, similar to a 25% unemployment rate. Broader labor market slack is more like a 25% uh, unemployment rate. And even though we have a pretty decent recovery in the forecast in the second half of this year and into next year, we think there's still going to be almost as much slack in the labor market, even at the end of 2021, as there was in 2009. And um, so, so things get better, but uh, they're still uh, you know, not close to full employment. And I think that's going to keep inflation probably below central bank targets. And it also means that there's probably no rush for policymakers to be exiting from these easy policies. Eventually, they're going to have to exit, of course, but uh, they do not have to yank the steering wheel around quickly once the economy starts to recover. Thanks. Well, thanks, Jan, for that, for that thorough walkthrough. And, and I think much of what you articulated, I think many of us on the phone hope plays itself out. Um, you know, what we really wanted to do on this call for the clients is come at you from the perspective of our own CFO, who's struggling with many of the same issues that, that all of you are, opportunities and challenges, I would say, uh, then talk a bit about the markets upon which we know that you are reliant to fund your businesses and why we're seeing what we're seeing there. And thankfully, that's a better picture than it was several weeks ago. 
And then really just to finish with the view of our top economic person to kind of try to prognosticate a little bit about um, what this might look like. And I think all of us can agree that um, the path of this depends very much on uh, the medicine and how, how quickly we all get our arms around this health crisis and, and then the economics will follow from there. Maybe not in a direct line, but certainly uh, there's a close relationship. We wanted to thank on behalf of me and Anthony, all of you for joining this call today, for being such great clients of the firm. It's in moments like these that we uh, really uh, understand and value and cherish the relationships that we've got with all of you. And so every time that you pick up the phone and call us uh, to ask us for advice on anything, it's something that we you know, are really, really excited about and, and, and willing to um, and eager to jump on. So hope everybody has a great week and stay safe. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed it, we hope you subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. And tune in for our weekly markets update Friday morning, where leaders around the firm provide their quick take on markets and COVID-19 related volatility. This podcast was recorded on April 28th, 2020. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.